Well, you've just experienced another miracle of God's grace. <laughs> Who would have ever believed that a young blind man would be able to lead music in a worship service? And yet, Brother Brian comes every week and he's prepared and we're so thankful for him. I don't know that I've ever worked with a with a musician with a finer spirit uh, than he has, and we are thankful for him uh, today. Well, I do not feel adequate to be here today, uh, but I know that God has a message for us, and so I want to share that with you today as best I can, and ask for God's grace uh, as I speak to you today. Today we uh, take our religious freedoms quite for granted, don't we? One of the things that I'm thankful for is separation of church and state. It's a relatively new idea, considering all of history, one that was adopted during the formation of our nation. One man in particular was given much credit for that important idea. His name is Roger Williams. He was born in London in 1603. Roger became a minister and then came to live in America because of his belief that the Church of England had become corrupt. In England, the church and state are one. The king served not only as the head of the country, but also the head of the church. Roger stood against the idea of a state church, so he left the Anglican church, the official church there in England, and he became a separatist. He was separating himself from the mainline denomination, and he became a Puritan. He also was a strong believer that the king had no right to sell the land belonging to the American Indians without their consent and reimbursement. So he came to America, and he served as a minister in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. But he was finally forced to leave there because he believed that the Puritan church, along with the local uh, government there, had no right to force its people to worship and join the church, much like it had been in England. The state-run Puritan church in Massachusetts was not going to give up their power, so he made his way to Nar uh, Narragansett Bay, where he settled and he founded a new colony known as Rhode Island. He also founded the very first Baptist church in America because he believed in baptism by immersion. Although he suffered much for his belief, his idea of separation of church and state became a building block for the document that we now have and call the Bill of Rights. Roger Williams stood with conviction. Today, we're going to look at a character in the Bible, a person, a real-life person who lived. His name was Daniel, a Hebrew young man who decided to follow his conscience. He was devoted to God, and he chose to follow God's commands instead of the commands of men. Let me give you a little bit of background and set the stage here. The nation of Israel had gone through some very difficult times during the period of the kings 
The nation of Israel itself had split into two countries. Uh, the northern kingdom was known as Israel. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. Each country had its own capital. The capital of Judah, of course, remained as Jerusalem. And the temple was still there as well. The northern kingdom decided to uh, build a new temple. And so they, uh, they started uh, one in, in the city of Samaria. Now, while the southern kingdom of Judah uh, retained Jerusalem as its capital, its center for worship was still there in the temple in Jerusalem. So the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., uh, and the southern kingdom fell uh, 136 years later, uh, during, uh, including Jerusalem, to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Now, it was customary that when a country... Uh, conquered another nation, they would take many of the leading residents uh, of that conquered nation to other cities and they would relocate them in their country. The idea behind this, of course, was to keep them from gathering and causing rebellion uh, once again. Daniel was part of that first group of captives uh, from Jerusalem to be taken into Babylon. More than likely, he was just a teenager when he left. Uh, by order of King Nebuchadnezzar, he, along with a select group of young people, took training in the arts, letters, and wisdom. He was later given a job in the government as an advisor to the king. He served in that position until the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians in 539 B.C. He was 80 years old at that time. He was then given another job by the Persians as a high government official as well in their government. Now, his ministry among the exiles in Babylon and Persia was different from all of the other prophets of his day. Preaching was not a part of his ministry to the people as was characteristic of the other prophets of God. Daniel's circle of influence was pretty much uh, confined then to the officials of the government, especially the kings of Babylon and Persia. So that brings us to our first passage of Scripture today. We're going to be looking at Daniel, the first chapter. Let's begin with the first five uh, verses here. Actually, we're going to go ahead and read all of that passage. So if you just stand with me, and for the reading of God's Word, we'll read through that chapter together, all right? Now, some of these verses will not be on the screen, um, but we'll read together from his word. All right. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had ability to serve the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, 
so that at the end of that time they might serve the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom uh, the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be examined before you and the countenances of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their countenance appeared better and fatter in in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. You may be Our Father, we are thankful for the reading of your word today, and we pray now that as we continue that you would speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, we ask that you help us understand your word better today than we ever have before. Father, we thank you again for loving us, for guiding us, and for the example of Daniel in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. verses 1 and 2, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took control of Judah, and he began the first deportation of citizens to Babylon. He chose to bring the wealthier nobility class of citizens of Israel in uh, in this first deportation. Jehoiakim was the appointed king of Judah at this time, and he was known for his very wicked lifestyle. It was written of Jehoiakim by rabbis who lived during that day that he lived in an incestuous relationship with his own mother, daughter-in-law, and stepmother. He was also known to murder men, uh, violate their wives, and then confiscate their land. 
Jehoiakim reportedly defied God's command not to worship idols, and he led his country to worship them as well. Because of his lifestyle and his refusal to follow God's commandments, God turned him over uh, to the Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar bound him and had him taken away in fetters, and when he died, no one in the kingdom mourned his passing. Solomon's temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed, and the sacred vessels of the temple were handed over to the Babylonians as well. The Babylonians incorporated them into their own worship, a violation of God's commandments. In verse 3, Ashpenaz was a, a chief official now at the court of Nebuchadnezzar. He was ordered to bring the first batch of Judeans to Babylon to, to live permanently, and most of the people taken at this time were what we would call the cream of the crop. Those were the brightest, most elite families of Judah. In verse 4, there are several criteria that are uh, stated here for selecting these Israelites. Number one, they had to be male adolescents or even young adult males. The Persians and the Babylonians began training uh, their young men at about age 14. They had to have good overall health and an attractive appearance, appearance uh, specifically uh, no physical uh, defects. They had to be suitable for instruction in all wisdom meaning they had to be able to think and apply their knowledge. They had to be able to solve problems, and, and yet they needed to be creative as well. They had to have professional potential. That phrase, possessing knowledge in that verse, refers to knowledge gained by their senses. In other words, a knowledge they gained through experience, knowing how life works. We might call it today common sense. They, were also, uh, they also had to be quick to understand, uh, and that, that phrase, quick to understand, refers to being able to uh, understand something quickly and able to respond spontaneously. They had to be alert to new opportunities. They had to be able to serve in the king's court. They needed to possess the demeanor, the poise, the, the confidence, the familiarity with social decorum, that is, was expected then in the royal court. They would also be expected to learn Chaldean, which was the official language and the uh, uh, culture of the culture there in Babylon. Now, in verse 5, most conquering kings would have beheaded or banished their captives, even sending them to a form of concentration camp uh, to be exploited or tormented or even slain. Though King Nebuchadnezzar was known for his extreme cruelty, he decided to show these young men great kindness. He not only fed them, but he allowed them to eat of the same food that he regularly ate. Apparently, the king saw some potential in these young men, and he thought they were worth saving and cultivating. Now, I'm sure these young men must have been astonished at their treatment. Not only would they be treated like royalty, but they would receive the best education and training that money could buy. It was to be a three-year training program. Being very rigorous, it would be demanding. 
if they were successful at completing this training, it would be both a, a great opportunity and yet it would also be a danger. For once they began serving in the king's court, it was an opportunity to have a voice as a representative of their people. But it was also a danger in that it, they might forget where they, were, where they came from. And they might want to become Chaldean as well. King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to force these young men to assimilate into the Babylonian culture. He wanted them to learn the language, to dress like the others in Babylon, to eat the same foods that the Babylonians ate, and act like Babylonians act. Daniel and his buddies had to make a decision. What, would they, what, what, what were they going to do? Were they going to give in to the king's request? Or would they stick to God's laws? Especially in the area of diet. Today the world is still the same, isn't it? The world tries to press us into its mold. It always seeks to make us conform to the culture in which we live. But when it comes to obeying the Lord and His commands, sometimes we have to stand up, don't we, for our convictions in Christ. <clears throat> How many of you remember the show Candid Camera? Anybody? Ah, good. I figured this group would not remember that show. Well, on August 10, 1948, a pioneering television producer named Alan Funt debuted a hidden camera reality TV show called Candid Camera. I think I still remember the theme song from that as well. Well, the genius of the show is that it caught people in the act of being themselves. It uh, produced a lot of laughs, but it also offered a fascinating look into the human psyche. In one episode titled Face the Rear, an unsuspecting person boards into an elevator and he naturally turns around to face the door of the elevator. Well, that's when three actors entered the elevator and they faced the rear. A hidden camera in the elevator captured the confusion of the unsuspecting person, and you could see it in his face. Was he supposed to turn around or not? Finally, a fourth actor entered the elevator, and he faced the rear also. Without exception, the person facing the front would turn around and face the rear. The social influence exerted by those facing the rear was too overwhelming for that person to remain the only one facing the front. Aren't we like that today? Sometimes we tell our children, no, you can't do that. And then finally we give in to pressure. Or sometimes we say, we're not going to do a certain thing. No, we're not going to do that. And yet we turn around and we do it anyway. Why? 
Because everybody else is doing it. Remember that from the kids? Remember that from the teenagers? Mom, Dad, I want to go to that party. No, you can't go. Well, everybody's going, right? Well, let's go on. The Christian must stand with conviction. We're going to look at verses 8 through 15 here. 16, excuse me. Um, In verses 6 and 7, the book of Daniel identifies four of the young men uh, who had been chosen to be part of this special training event, and we've we've, uh, named them Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Their names were changed uh, to Babylonian names. The name change would help them blend in with their new culture better. This was all part of the assimilation process. Verse 8 indicates that Daniel knew the dietary laws of his own people, what things were defiled and what things were kosher. Food offered to idols, though, was definitely off-limits to every Jew, not to mention that other foods were off-limits as well, things such as pork, shellfish, horse meat, items that were eaten regularly in Babylon. Daniel decided in his heart that he just couldn't violate his conscience nor the Lord's commands. He would not eat the foods from the king's table. To eat these things would have made him un- would have made him ceremonially unclean. But more importantly, he knew it was a violation of God's laws. Thus, it would affect his relationship with God. Daniel took a bold step, but a calculated one. He asked for permission to not eat the food from the king's table. Notice he didn't demand it, but instead he humbled himself before his superior and he asked the question in a polite and respectful way. Now, as you can imagine, the uh, social repercussions of this decision were great. I'm sure the other young men who were part of the king's training program were looking at him and saying, you're about to get us all in trouble. They knew that Daniel's decision would be a problem. And who could predict how the king might react? King Nebuchadnezzar was known as a volatile and a violent man. There was a great chance that the king might even execute them if he thought they were being insubordinate. I'm sure the pressure to conform was getting greater. In verse 9, God stepped in to control Daniel's situation. In this passage, we find that God has worked in the heart of Ashpenaz. Ashpenaz, as you know, was the head eunuch. Uh, In that day and time, eunuchs were utilized in the king's court extensively because kings felt they were more trustworthy and more centered on their duties. We might say that Daniel was one of Ashpenaz's star students, though. He showed Daniel kindness and sympathy And he wanted them to succeed. Now remember in our previous verse that Daniel did not demand his own way. He didn't criticize the Babylonian religion, nor did he quote the laws of his God in order to condemn the Babylonians. 
On the contrary, because Daniel had found favor with his mentor, he wanted to approach him with as much respect and honor as he could. He certainly appreciated all that Ashpenaz had done for him. And it was true, Ashpenaz had developed a compassion for these Hebrew boys. The compassion referred to here was a warm feeling of genuine love and concern for these young trainees whom he had found to be different from many of the other captives. But it was a dangerous position to be in. Somehow, Ashpenaz found himself in the middle of something that could result in his undoing. Since the food came from the king's table, the request could have been construed as an insult to the king. God was working in their midst. As we look at this passage, we need to keep in mind that God was working through the Babylonians to bring judgment on his people, but he was also creating a good relationship between the young Hebrew men and the king's court. In verse 10, while he didn't want to say no, Ashpenaz was still responsible for the growth and the well-being of the young men. He made it clear that it wasn't him that wanted the Hebrews to eat from the king's table, but it was the king himself who had given this order. Looking ahead, Ashpenaz was afraid of what might happen if the young men didn't look as healthy as the other young men who were eating from the king's table. No doubt, he was worried for his own life. The king could have had him executed if he thought he had purposely withheld the king's food from these young trainees. So basically, Ashpenaz, the the head eunuch, denied the request. But in verses 11 and 12... Daniel wasn't about to give up. His plan A may have been destroyed, but he had an alternate plan, plan B. This time he approached the steward or the guard uh, who had been appointed uh, to them by Ashpenaz. Daniel uh, proposed a test to his guard. For ten days he and his friends would eat nothing but vegetables. The Hebrew here refers to anything grown grown from seed and, and of course, water to drink. So this proposal would give him a, a few days to prove that he and his friends would do just as well as the other young men who were eating from the king's table. The proposal would have been more appealing to the guard because it was a shorter number of days. In other words, he wasn't committing to a long-term program, just a few short days, and then uh, they would see how things progressed. Through this test, Daniel would be able to avoid eating and drinking things that would have defiled him before God. In verse 13, Daniel trusted the king's official and he tried to be as respectful to him as he had been with Ashpenaz. So he challenged him to examine the appearance of the uh, four Hebrew young men and and compare it to the appearance of the others. And after the comparison, he could make up his own mind as to what to do. Either allow the Hebrews to continue their diet or stop them. In verse 14, the guard must have had some regard then uh, for Daniel and his friends, for he agreed to let them do as they had requested, a 10-day test. However, he knew the consequences of a bad result. If the young men looked in any way deprived of good food and drink, he knew he was doomed. 
On the other hand, if it worked, the Hebrew men would be permitted to continue their diet unhindered. And apparently, this was something that he wanted to do for them. So in verses 15 and 16, the moment of truth came and the results were that the Hebrew men were actually healthier. Healthier looking than all the, the others who had eaten off the king's table. The steward or the guard was in no danger and the young Hebrews were then allowed to continue their special diets. The Hebrew word to describe the healthier appearance of Daniel and his friends is derived from the word in Hebrew for fat. It was used purposely here because that was exactly what Ashpenaz was afraid of. Their faces would look thinner, more gaunt, but that was not the case. They were fatter. So the result was that steward took the wine and the food from the king's table and he didn't let them eat that and he gave them vegetables and water instead. This became the new norm for these young men. Daniel's courage then to stand and make his convictions known brought about a positive change. Daniel was able to avoid violating his conscience and he was ultimately able to keep God's commands. Well, speaking of diets, I heard about a woman who was at her doctor's office and said to the doctor that she was interested in a weight loss patch that she had seen advertised in a magazine. Supposedly, you stick it on and the pounds, they melt away. So she asked him, Doctor, does that work? Sure, he said, if you put it over your mouth. <laughs> well, let's go on to our last section here. The Christian must serve with conviction, verses 17 through 19. Now, these young men had been faithful to God um, during their training for the king. God responded by enhancing their intellects. They had the ability to study a great range of subjects and understand what they were studying. The implication is that they were intellectually wiser than most of their peers. Of all the Hebrews, Daniel was not only an intellect, but God had also given him alone the ability to understand visions and dreams. This was going to be important as he served the king. You'll see that as you read through the book of Daniel. In verse 18, the king had set aside three years for their training to be completed. Ashpenaz brought them personally before the king for his inspection. It must have uh, been a, a nervous time, but a time of extreme pride and joy as Ashpenaz presented them before the king. I'm sure his compassion and concern for these young men was great as he saw them com complete and fulfill all the goals that he had set before them. In verse 19, the king Nebuchadnezzar personally interviewed the young men. And notice what he found here. None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. The king handpicked these young men. They were head and shoulders above the rest of the young men. They were selected to serve the king. 
I believe they excelled because they trusted God and they refused to compromise their convictions. Well, this week we're going to celebrate the birth of our nation. It's one of the most important days, I think, in the history of our planet. Why? Think about this question. What kind of world would we be living in right now if it weren't for the United States? But think with me for just a moment about those 13 early colonies and the men who led them. These men came to the conclusion that they could no longer coexist under the arbitrary rule of their British king. They drew up a document that declared their freedom from this king and they set up a new country, one in which the people would rule themselves. Let me read a small portion of this document. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of those ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a new government. Now listen to this last statement. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Fifty-six men signed the Declaration of Independence standing for their convictions resulted in untold sufferings for themselves and their families. Of the 56 men, five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary War. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships of the war. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ships sunk by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts and died in poverty. At the Battle of Yorktown, the British General Cornwallis had taken over Thomas Nelson's home for his headquarters. Nelson quietly ordered General George Washington to open fire on his home. 
The home was destroyed and Nelson died bankrupt. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His fields and his mill were completely destroyed. These men made the supreme sacrifice, didn't they? Their convictions were to serve God and to serve man and not a king. I pray that each of us in here today will stand for our Christian convictions. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we are indeed grateful to be living in a nation where we are free. Free to live as we want to live, free to be able to raise our families, to be able to work where we want to work, to be able to worship where we want to worship. Father, we thank you for all that you have given us in this country. Lord, we realize that our nation is the envy of this world. We realize that today there are many countries around the world in which these things just simply are not possible. And persecution is rampant. Thank you, Father, for what you've done in our lives. We pray now that you'll help us to remember this 4th of July, just how much you have done for each and every one of us. Help us stand for our convictions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.